Before I introduce today's guest, I want to tell you about our sponsor, thegreatcoursesplus.com. The Great Courses is, of course, the teaching company's Great Courses, of which I've been a longtime fan and user. And now they have an app. You just download the free app on your phone. You tap on it and you go to whatever uh, course you're interested in listening to. I just, this is my latest one. I've been uh, going through Native Peoples of North America. This is lecture number 17 I'm up to now by Daniel Cobb, PhD. The beautiful thing about the Great Courses Plus app is that you can skip around with lectures. You don't have to just kind of grind through lecture after lecture for an entire course if you decide you don't want to listen to the whole thing. Um, This particular course is 24 lectures, and um, so like most courses, I probably won't listen to every single lecture. But this one I've been thinking about because of the whole conversation, national conversation on reparations uh, for African Americans. And if we go that route, then Native Americans certainly have a case to be made. And this history is really disturbing. It's difficult to listen to because it's reality of what happened um, here in North America. So I think it's the kind of thing where knowledge is good before we make political decisions. But anyway, that's not the point of this. I just uh, want to encourage you to uh, log on to thegreatcoursesplus.com slash salon, and then you get a free trial as a listener to my podcast. TheGreatCoursesPlus.com slash salon, and you get a free trial. It's great. So give it a shot. Give it a try. Uh, when you're driving, working out, doing chores, walking, hiking, whatever, it's a great way to consume content. All right. Thanks for listening. My guest today is Augustine Fuentes. His new book is Why We Believe, Evolution and the Human Way of Being. We discuss uh, what it means to believe something you know, belief in evolution versus belief in affirmative action or whatever different kinds of beliefs have different structures to them. Of course, we talk about faith and uh, religious beliefs, but more generally how beliefs are formed in the first place in terms of symbolic meaning, which is what the focus of his book is. We discuss the evolution of awe, wonder, aesthetic sense, beauty, art, music, dance, etc. That is, to what extent are these adaptations for group living, or are they acceptations, spandrels, or just sort of accidental byproducts of something else? We talk about uh, when the first people were that realized that we die, and therefore we should bury our dead with some kind of symbolic meaning. The uh, evolution of the theory of mind from hunting, perhaps, is the origins of that. How uh, archaeologists and anthropologists like him infer a mind and meaning from uh, archaeological artifacts, you know, stone tools or, or um, you know, figurines and images and uh, musical instruments and so on. What can you glean from those? We talk about uh, the domestication of the dog and then also self-domestication. That is, to what extent humans domesticated ourselves. There's much debate about that. Gobekli Tepe, one of my favorite topics. Uh, and, and to what extent we've underestimated the capacity of hunter-gatherers and small groups to really cooperate and, and, and construct some, some major um, architectural monuments and um, uh, without big cities, without um, massive uh, workforces and so on. Uh, we talk about the origins of uh, wealth, poverty, or, uh, property, and uh, social hierarchy, and ultimately income inequality gender role specialization, the evolution of violence and warfare, uh, and then we end with talking about love and cooperation and affection that we also have the capacity of. So with that, Augustine Fuentes. This is your host, Michael Shermer, and you're listening to Science Salon. 
a series of conversations with leading scientists, scholars, and thinkers about the most important issues of our time. Your new book is Why We Believe Evolution in the Human Way of Being. As you can see in the backdrop here, I have some interest in in that subject. Uh, the believing brain and why people believe weird things and how we believe. How's that for a, a trilogy? <laughs> so when I saw your book, I thought I got to have this guy in my show. I mean, this is right up my alley. I love your uh, evolutionary approach, anthropological approach, multidisciplinary. I think that's the only possible way to answer questions like that. Um, so uh, just start off by giving us a little bit of background of, of, of how you got into all these different sciences. You're an anthropologist, I guess, by training, but you dabble in neuroscience and linguistics and all these other fields. Yeah, I, you know, so I'm an anthropologist, but my, my degrees are in zoology and anthropology, right? So I've always been interested in animal behavior at large, and I see humans as really interesting animals. <laughs> and mm -hmm. so I think drawing all of that toolkit together is, is something that's, uh, for me, really enticing. So um, I've done work with other primates. I've done work on human sort of cultural and behavioral stuff. I've done some genetics, uh, population genetics research, conservation research, um, and I've always been really interested in what makes us tick, right? Um, well, why do we do what we do? And I've become more and more convinced over the past decades of trying to ask these questions that like one approach by itself is insufficient, right? I mean, we, 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 to understand the human, we need to sort of get into the anthropology, into the neurobiology, into the history. Even the philosophy and, you know, something that I learned in, in some of the work that led me to write this book is I've even been engaging with humanistic scholars and theologians just to sort of have them push me to think about things. We disagree on a ton, but it's actually a really good way to sort of think together on these things and to refine questions and skills. Yeah, a lot of the references you make to the book um show how interdisciplinary it is. And one of the more interesting ones I had never come across is putting a camera on a primate, I guess, a, I don't know if this is a lemur or a whatever this is, a macaque, yeah. so you could see what the world looks like to them, or at least imagine what they must be seeing. I don't know if this was a GoPro camera or what. Uh, I'll just read this portion because it's, it's really quite stunning. In Singapore, a male wearing the camera climbed down from a tree and approached the large six-lane highway dividing him from a forest patch and an enormous fruiting fig tree. He leaped onto the pedestrian overpass and climbed onto its roof, where he began his jaunt across the bridge, presumably heading to the fig tree. But halfway across the bridge, the monkey stopped. Now, remember, we're reviewing this footage on a monitor after recovering the camera and are now seeing not the monkey himself, but his point of view. He spends a few seconds moving toward the fig tree and then turns toward the edge of the walkway roof, overhanging the six lanes of speeding traffic. He approaches the edge and stops, looks over. We see the image of speeding cars rushing past in both directions. Then he sits up and the frame is filled like a painting with borders of forest, a center of highways and speeding traffic, and the highway rise flats in the background. It's a stunning view. He sits motionless watching this panorama for several minutes. Then the image shifts, the fig tree flies back into view, and it gets closer and closer. I love that because, it, in a way, it's kind of a theory of mind thing. Like, you know, how do we put ourselves in somebody else's minds? In a way, you're kind of doing that. Like, let's at least see what he's looking at. And then imagine that. Yeah. 
Yeah, no, that 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 that's exactly sorry to interrupt you. But but that was it was so exciting because I've watched primates and other species a lot. But uh, this was working with um, uh, National Geographic and their critter cam team. Mm. And so we designed some cameras for a couple different species of, of macaque monkeys. It's really fascinating. But what it showed me was that example and another one that I put in there and a few others um, got me really to think about uh, you're right. It is about theory of mind, but it's also this capacity for other highly social primates, uh, probably a lot of different mammals, but the primates, at least we have a better understanding what they're seeing and sort of how they're seeing it. The fact that they experience something like fascination or awe, right, I think for me really drove home this idea that to understand how humans believe so fully and so wholly in things, as you've noted in your own work, how people com commit just completely and fully, I think drawing on like, what are those broader evolutionary processes and patterns and, and knowing that our, our close cousins there, the primates, can, can sort of zone out on the beauty of something, whatever it means to them. I don't know, yeah, but that they yeah. do that. I think that tells us something. Yeah, it reminded me of um, the uh, What's It Like to Be a Bad Paper, uh, Thomas Nagel's famous paper. You know, and, and it, it's like, but I can sort of imagine, and you know, there's experiments where somebody sits in a closet and, and you can tell which way the wall is or the door or whatever from the sound. You could sort of then imagine what it would be like to use echolocation. In this case, you know, it's a it's a primate. We're primates. And, you know, so the neural wiring and the, you know, fingers and arms and so on, the visual field, the visual cortex, there's a lot of similarity there. And and so this is how I solve the other minds problem, by the way, is the Copernican principle, you know, that we're uh -huh. not special, but I'm not special. And so right. if I know what it feels like to feel pain and I see you exhibiting similar symptoms, I I I can't think, well, he's he's just a, he's not experiencing anything. He's a zombie. No, I, I, I'm not special. So he probably does, too. So that this monkey crawling across this bridge, I can imagine he must be feeling a little bit of terror or maybe, you know, uh, maybe maybe awe or like, what the hell is this? <laughs> but I got to get to my fruit. I got to get to the fig, you know, so you, you, you can imagine the kinds of things we have, maybe not to that extent because they don't have as big a cortex or whatever. But it seems reasonable to, to make those extrapolations. Yeah, it does. And that tells us a little something, I think, in a broader evolutionary context. Everyone who wants to sort of define everything that humans does, as you know, singly as this unique thing that humans have. I mean, that's just it's not going to work. Right. And right. we're part of the world. But we do do stuff distinctively. So that's that's what really excited me about sort of thinking about this. And and, you know, um, this whole way in which people commit humans commit wholly to stuff that we just can't understand why they're doing it. Uh, I mean, you know, the, the entire skeptic magazine and infrastructure is on trying to push people to question these things more. But the fact that people do this all the time really interested me. And I think, you know, my argument is that we're really talking about an adaptive process or capability that's that's misdirected and poorly directed in many, many cases. Yeah, back in the, the sort of bad old days of peer behaviorism where you're not allowed to infer uh, intention or any kind of mental states in other organisms, just the behavior of organisms, as Skinner said, which reminds me of the, the joke about the two behaviors who had sex. And afterwards, the one says, well, it was good for you. How was it for me? <laughs> you know, again, it's reasonable to infer internal states if we feel them because we're not special and, and so on. So let's start with um, what it means to believe something. I mean, when I say I believe in evolution or I believe in the Big Bang Theory or I believe in climate change, 
I mean something different when I than when I say I believe in a progressive tax or I believe in affirmative action, something like that. So let's let's talk about what you mean by believing something. So yeah, I think that's really important, right? Because when I'm talking about there's this stuff that are people committed to or like or appreciate, but here belief is this capacity for the human to take like our range of experience, everything we've taken in to combine it with our imagination and then to commit wholly and fully to something, an idea, a concept, um, a possibility uh, that we might not even be able to see or hold, but we know it and we fully believe it, right? Um, so, so belief is this kind of capacity to commit, drawing on our experience and context, but to commit so wholly that it becomes real for us, right? And I think that's it. So, so I believe in, you know, uh, certain tax laws. It means I like those laws, but, uh, but belief in the sense that I'm using it is a much more profound, yeah. I think, and 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 more serious component because it if you believe in something, that shapes the whole way you actually perceive the world, right? What inputs coming through your optic and auditory nerves, how they're actually structured. Um, so to believe is to wholly commit to an idea or a concept so fully that it becomes your own reality. Yeah, I think probably not understanding that is what leads to a lot of frustration for skeptics or anybody uh, uh, on one side of an issue where I can't convince this other guy that climate change is real or, or whatever. It, it, because his belief is not based on parts per million of CO2 gases or some technical scientific thing. He's a conservative and Al Gore endorsed climate change through that movie and he was the Democratic guy, so I got to be against that. We're not even talking about the same thing when we talk about belief. You know, he's defining this as part of his worldview, or the example I always use is, you know, if you give uh, people a choice between Jesus and, and Darwin, you know, if they're a creationist, they're not picking Darwin, you know, because th that's the wrong level of belief. You know, they don't even know what you're talking about with DNA or, you know, fossils or punctuated equilibrium or whatever. It's just like, you know, this is my worldview, and, and I'm committed to this idea about the Bible and, you know, so on, and, and, and so you got to take that off the table. I usually send them to Francis Collins' book, um, The Language of God, because he fully accepts all of evolution. He's the head of the NIH and world-renowned scientist, and he's a born-again Christian. So, so I send believers to him rather than to Dawkins, so they don't feel like, oh, you're attacking my, my whole belief system that I define myself as by showing them, well, this guy's on your team. <laughs> and he accepts it. And then they, oh, okay, so I guess it's okay. So that's what you mean by by belief. Yeah, yeah. So it's, it, it is that kind of whole thing. Like, And this is the frustrating thing, as you point out. So let's use the climate science stuff. Um, data are irrelevant. In, to a certain extent, data are important, but they're never going to change someone's mind who believes in something. That's the whole point, right? That's what belief is. Uh, and I think there's a lot of confusion about, because belief is, as I've outlined, is this very specific, really intense reality for humans. There's a lot of stuff that people are just ignorant of or don't know. I think the evolutionary processes are, are the same. I've had so many conversations with people who belong to different religious traditions who think that their religious tradition has a conflict with the fact that organic life has changed over the course of the history of the planet um, until you sort of lay it out. And so their belief in whatever their faith tradition is actually doesn't preclude them from understanding evolution, right? Because evolution happens whether you believe in it or not. It does not, <laughs> right. uh, it doesn't really matter. But, but 
So beliefs can be modified around the edges and stuff. But I think what's really important is to understand that someone you disagree with, if it's over a belief, it's real for them, right? Even though you can't understand how they could possibly have that position. Yeah. Yeah, you know, in a later edition of The Origin of Species, Darwin addressed the issue of uh, religious conflict with his theory. And he he, kind of dissembled a little bit, but then he referred to Newton and and made reference to the fact that it, you know after Newton's theory was accepted you know initially people thought well this is somehow challenging to religious beliefs but in fact Newton was very religious himself and 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 believers just came to accept it well you know gravity this is how god runs the universe you know he set it all up in motion and this is how solar systems are formed with gravity that's how god does it and darwin was then saying well sort evolution is sort of that's how god does it as a way of trying to get people to accept it, um, you know, so. Yeah, I, I think I think it's important, though. Um, I like to always point out because people like they, they grab my book and they say, oh, it's a book about religion. And I'm like, no, right. it's actually a book about belief. Right. Religions, the capacity of religious is one way in which belief manifests in humans. But I think belief is a much more fundamental thing. And I make a big deal. And I think it's really important to differentiate religions. Right. The contemporary institutions and yeah. structures yeah. and theologies from human capacity to be religious, right? Because humans as a species, we're very old. Religions, as we know them today, are very new. Yeah, I, I, I love that you have a chapter on economics right after the one on religion, because so much of economic belief is kind of faith-based. You know, I mean, the, what is the value of money? Nothing. It's just paper and ink. You know, it's a, it's a kind of a faith commitment we all make. This is so-called fiat money, and the government says they all back it, and I hope they do, you know, but there's kind of this hope, faith, you know, trust that isn't based on anything tangible, really. Yeah, no, and I think that's amazing. And so the economics argue, I really, I had fun writing that chapter and doing the research, um, specifically because I wanted to push people to think about this capacity for belief, right? It works well. I'm glad we can believe in money, right? Because, yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. the structure... But you know what? It is a total belief, right? There is nothing more real about a $20 bill than what we imbue in it, right? And I I think that's, that's, it's important for us to understand, I think, that this belief is this larger capacity um, with some horrible outcomes, but also some wonderful outcomes, so that it isn't always a debate about, well, religion versus everything else. I I think it's much more complicated and more interesting than that. Yeah, so by faith, you know, uh, atheists usually accuse believers of, well, you're believing something without evidence. But I guess your larger point would be much of what we do, we believe without evidence. Right. But but to believe that's that creates the sense of of, of evidentiary reality, right? Mm, um, mm. That's the whole point of believing, right? Um, and, and this the whole thing, you know, back to the religion context. Um, most people in their own religious experience, right, um, aren't going to draw on theology or the details of sort of something. They're going to tell you it's true because they feel it or they, right, they right. know it. Um, and I think that's the important thing. And just like uh, we people wander through our economic system. I Hopefully in the current moment, they're questioning it more than they usually do. But but they wander through our economic system totally with 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 open belief, right, committed that it's totally real. And I think we do that with lots of things. And I think it's good. I mean, it, it allows humans to do a lot of things, but it also leads to some real, real dangerous outcomes. Yeah, I mean, when when atheists put forward these counter arguments to the first cause argument or the fine tuning argument or the cosmological argument, 
you know, thinking, well, if I could just convince them by these arguments. But in fact, you know, people, for example, they don't go to church because they want to hear the the fine tune argument or something like that. You know, they, they already believe they don't they don't really need a set of arguments. Um, they're there for other reasons, emotional reasons or social support or my friends are there or people, my coworkers, you know, free parking <laughs> you know, and uh, babysitting. And, you know, so it's kind of a whole social thing that really doesn't have much to do with evidence one way or the other. Yeah. And, and it's also the experience, right? I mean, it's funny that you say the social thing, because so much of what we do is the social thing, right? <laughs> That's this right. big human thing. We're so vested in, in deeply enmeshed in this social stuff. And, and, you know, in one way, that's why, you know, a lot of the interesting work on, on contemporary religions lately has really pointed out that social network structuring, controlling, all of those, the safety net, all of those things that religions do. Um, and, and I agree. I think there's good data for all of that. But, but I also like to, to remember that there's humans have fairly deep in our evolutionary history, this capacity for, you know, transcendence in, in the sense that to experience more than the here and now. What that means, you know, I don't always know, but people have it. That doesn't mean that a particular religious explanation for it is the accurate one, but it does mean that I think humans have been dealing with that for a long time. And that makes the whole, I think, discussion about belief and and belief practices more interesting. Yeah, last week I took my first trip in 10 months (laughs) in in an airport. You know, it it was a weird experience. I opened my closet and went, okay, what are these things? Oh, those are shoes and my suit. I was doing a debate with uh, Dinesh D'Souza at this church in Michigan. And, you know, he's a pretty hardcore conservative Christian and Trump supporter. And uh, so I had the opportunity to ask him and the audience of this Lutheran um, church, you know, why do you support Trump? I mean, I get the, you know, back in the moral majority days, uh, you know, you want to pick the politician who's kind of religious, you know, or at least, you know, at least says he's religious or whatever, because those are your values. And you look up to this person, George W. Bush, you know, says he found Jesus and oh, boy, that's our man. You know, but so obviously Trump, it's like, how how could you possibly endorse this guy? I mean, he's the least religious person. And, you know, Stormy Daniels and the playing off the Playboy Bunny and the fraudulent universe, you know, just name a hundred things. And it really came. The answer was, we don't really care what he does. This is our team and he's fighting for us. And, and it's not that they've abandoned religious principles by endorsing Trump. It's that these are our values and we want the judges that are going to help us enforce those values, like pro-life, for example. And he's getting us those judges. So we don't care what he does with, you know, Stormy Daniels or whatever. You know, yes, it's embarrassing, but it's a team thing. And he's he's our guy. Yeah, <laughs> uh, you know. It, that's a really problem. That's such a challenging thing, right? Um, and I, I think it's very interesting. I um, was part of a committee that that hosted Dinesh D'Souza and Christopher Hitchens for a oh, debate oh, at Notre yes, Dame a number right. of years ago. Oh, I remember that. I, Christopher Hitchens was fantastic. As, I mean, it was really, uh, anyway, that's a long story. But um, but one thing that struck me about D'Souza was this, um, this intentional, uh, as you just said, um, there was not a depth of belief and faith in this context. It was a political manipulation, a yeah. stance saying, we're going to use this to get what we want. Right. I'm going to make this position because this is the position I'm going to argue, not because of, of, of a deep driving faith. And so that's what concerns me about with this thing. I mean, for example, with Trump, these people who are Christians, I mean, there is a jarring disconnect, right, right. Uh, between right. the sort of Christian theological mainframe 
uh, and 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 Trumpian politics. Uh, and yet you see these targeted. And so in that case, this is one of those things where it's sort of a fundamentalist where they're going to put aside most of their sort of moral and ethical reservations for an objective goal because they believe down the road that's the right thing to do. And it's it's a really weird, it's very strange. Yeah. But, uh, <laughs> well, let's go through the first part of your book uh, on the evolution of belief. That is, to what extent uh, uh, we're different from, say, Neanderthals or Homo erectus, and how do you know? I just had um, Rebecca Wag Sykes on uh, her book, uh, it's right up there, uh, Kindred on Neanderthals. And I was amazed at what they're able to discern or infer from fossils. Uh, you know, whether, the, you know, the, 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 the yeah. sort of stuff on the teeth meant they were pulling, stretching leather things based on, you know, and the, the guy was right-handed because the right yeah. teeth were more wore down than the left. And it's like, wow, this is really incredible. And, of course, we got into the burials. And, you know, to me, this is super interesting. You talk about this, uh, you know, how do you infer mind or behavior or whatever from an artifact? Yeah. And that's the big challenge, right? Because we're really interested in, like, when did this capacity evolve? When, when could we create meaning, art, symbol, all of that stuff? Well, the, the, the depressing answer is we won't really know, right? Because without a time machine, we can't right, be there. Right. But we can look, we can glean, we can sort of pull out hints from the materials. And those hints are in things called meaning making, right? It's this whole field of semiotics, which studies how do things infer and create meaning in the world. And and I think looking at the human evolutionary record, especially the last three or 400,000 years, we see increasing evidence of items that were modified and manipulated in a way that evoke a sensation, right? They create something. They're not clear. They're not tools, right? They're not clearly used to chop or to cut or to build or hmm. grind. But, but you look at them with some marks or some ochre, this pigment painted on it, or they're chiseled in certain ways, or uh, that famous Neanderthal case where they took a bunch of stalactites and stalagmites and built them in a little circle deep in a cave with a fire in the middle of it. All of these things we can look at, you and I can look at as humans and, and recognize that they meant something, right? We don't know exactly what it is, but we can identify. And, yeah. and, and that continues to expand and develop till we start to see iconography and you know uh, carvings and cave paintings. So what we see in the evolutionary record of the last three, four, or 500,000 years is actually the development of material evidence of a kind of imagination being translated into material reality. And so there, that pattern, that basis gives us something. And, you know, you say that everyone's surprised at how, like, the Neanderthals can do all these things. I'm not at all, because if you actually read the literature and do any of the work looking, I mean, I've held many of these artifacts in my hands. If you actually look at these things, you recognize that all of those populations, we, some people call them different species, some people subspecies, different populations. Anyway, the members of the genus Homo for the last few hundred thousand years at least have been doing really interesting imagining and trying their damnedest to make those imaginations reality. Yeah, there's that. I have that picture in one of my books of the, um, uh, uh, of the buried, buried man with all the beads, uh, you know, like 2,000 beads in there. The, the, they didn't fall in there by accident. Unlike maybe you could say, well, the flowers, yeah, maybe the seeds, the pollens fell in there by accident later. But th this is clearly intentional of something. But what? And, and so what's really interesting is that uh, my colleague Mark Kissel and I have actually uh, put together a database of all of the earlier evidences of this. Oh, right. um, and it turns out that Homo erectus, Neanderthals, other things that aren't quite us but close to us, lots of sort of meaning-making evidence is there. So it didn't just sort of emerge. It didn't just appear. It evolved 
with lots of fits and starts and failures and beginnings, but but it's obviously pretty deep in the human evolutionary story. And and I, I argue it, and, and, and so do some of my colleagues, that this capacity became part of the sort of human need, right? The, the way humans make it in the world. And, and that created this sort of cognitive and social infrastructure for, for full-blown belief later down the road. Yeah, I don't know if you, uh, since we're mammals, I, I also wrote about this study with elephants. Uh, you know, elephants grieve. There was that book, you know, When Elephants Grieve. Uh, but this research that uh, Cynthia Moss uh, wrote about in her book, Elephant Memories, uh, wait, is this one? No, that was a different one. Um, oh, the one where, um, sorry, just, oh, Karen McComb. I don't know if you know her research. Mm. Uh, elephants, I'll just read this portion. Elephants have also passed the self-awareness mirror test, and they, too, appear to grieve. When they encounter the bones of long-dead elephants, especially the skulls and tusks, they have been seen to stop and ponder the find and carefully touch and move the bones with their trunks in what looks like deep curiosity or concern. According to the animal behaviorist Karen McComb, their interest in the ivory and skulls of their own species means that they would be highly likely to visit the bones of relatives who die within their home range. To test this hypothesis, McComb and her colleagues placed objects about 25 meters from the elephants they were studying in the Amboseli National Park in Kenya. In the first condition, they planted the skulls of a rhinoceros, buffalo, and elephant near 17 different elephant families, noting that their subjects spent the majority of their time carefully examining the skulls of their own species, smelling and touching them with their trunks. In a second condition, a different set of 19 elephant families were confronted with a piece of wood, a piece of ivory, and an elephant's skull. Predictably, their interest scaled from most to least relevant ivory skull wood. But McComb notes their preference for ivory was very marked, with ivory not only receiving excessive attention in comparison with wood, but also being selected significantly more than the elephant skull. In an email uh, to me, she wrote, Interest in ivory may be enhanced because of its connection with living elephants, individuals sometimes touching the ivory of others with their trunks during social behavior. Anyway, I mean, I don't know what you can infer from that. It's an elephant, not a primate, but they're mammals. They're social. They care. They have feelings, obviously. And, and that's such an important thing. So my colleague Barbara King wrote a wonderful book, When Animals Grieve. It's oh, just that's where she what, oh, yes. collects uh, a wide variety yeah, of different, different um, uh, species and, and shows, you know, without a doubt, it, it's not ubiquitous. It's not uniform. But many organisms care, especially highly social mammals, really care about their friends and their kin and their pack mates and and I, you know, I think that's really important. And it, and it shows you sort of how deep this can go. Uh, that whole thing, as you said earlier, with the whole behaviorism, the pushing against animals ability to really to understand themselves and others is absurd. I, I've yeah. done a lot of work with multiple species of animals and anyone who's done good work, you know, been around other organisms a lot, um, recognizes how how intelligent they are and how well they are situated in their own space. Right. I mean, octopuses octopuses are brilliant they're mm -hmm. fascinating right uh, the cetaceans all of the canids you know there's all of these social organisms they're really fascinating and we're part of that mix but we do something that they don't right we make these incredible things that we imbue with meaning at a level and intensity much higher than others and so it's not that we're unique in the world it's just that we're particularly interesting in this particular area you quote uh, Terry Deegan, 
when our lineage solidified a ubiquitous semiotic ecosystem as a central facet of our niche. So to quote Marty McFly from Back to the Future, English doc. <laughs> so here's the English version. <laughs> when we look around for humans, we built a world of meaning so that everything around us means something. This coffee cup, right? It's not always just a coffee cup. I actually got it from a, a journal publication. So it mm. means something to me. I have this attachment, a kind of emotional bond with it, right? Um, the world in which we live in, when we see how people dress, what they look like, all of those things mean things to us. So for humans, the world is not just material. It's also infused with meaning. So everything has sort of this dynamic perceptual reality for us. Stuff means things to us more deeply uh, than just the material, right? Yeah. Um, so, and I mean, and now think about what's going on where we are right now. I mean, you walk outside and depending on what someone's wearing, you get a visceral reaction by just looking at it. <laughs> I mean, if they have a MAGA hat on or if they have a, a some other uh, on the other side. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Pretty much every night and every five minutes on social media, there's something infuriating to see. <laughs> yeah. So the question but, but is, that's, is, that's what, yeah, go, well, okay. no, go so, uh, uh, so um, you know, in your book, you, you kind of trace this from the you know earliest beginnings, let's say, animals' capacity to learn something, you know, just causal connections, you know, between A and B, A happens, B happens, association learning, and so on. That's kind of a primitive belief. I believe that when this happens, then that's going to happen. This is good for hunting or something like this. And, uh, you know, Louis Leidenberg um, has research that we published in Skeptic, actually, on as as hunting as the you know sort of earliest form of scientific reasoning in the sense that they're hypothesis testing they're doing some theory of mind you know there's some tracks then all of a sudden the tracks stop in this bush and it looks like he spent the night there and then it's a super hot day now so he must have left early and then he went that direction because there's water and shade over there you know they're doing a lot of, these hunters are doing a lot of inferential thinking and he tracks us back several hundred thousand years to that kind of yeah. tracking and then that is kind of a scientific way of thinking. So science, in a way, if you think of it in a Popperian sense, we're testing hypotheses. Well, that's what these guys are doing. So you can push that back. But that's still different, I think, than what you're talking about with imbuing yeah. meaning. How do you go from something basic like that to what you're talking about? So that's a great example. And, and that's very deep. And many organisms are capable of that. But humans are really good at inferential deductions, right? So like you just said, oh, I can figure this because of this, because of that. So this hunting example you just gave. So it, we know probably very deep time they could follow something, found that it rested. It was hot the next day. So they're like, it must have left early. Um, the sun comes up from over there. So the light would have been that way. Maybe they went in that direction. So that's all inferential, right? Um, but what humans have started to do over the last few hundred thousand years is to layer on top of that basal inference more, more explanatory power. So he stopped here in, in the bushes before heading off there. Um, but by heading off there, see that mountain over there has this sort of, so it's going to go to that mountain. To, so it's starting to mix different kinds of meaning into the explanations that mm -hmm. are just inferences. And so slowly but surely over time, and we see this in the archaeological record, um, instead of just making a tool, right, that does something, they make a tool that has a design on it. Or instead of, you know, like burying someone, they bury someone with beads or flowers or feathers. Um, and so even in this hunting example, all of those inferences are still there made by the hunters, but then they're interconnected and interwoven with, well, why do we hunt this this time of year and that that time of year? 
which may or may not have anything to do with the availability. It mm. might have to do with some different kinds of taboos or explanations. And, and as that ratchets up, this world of meaning, right, this ecology of meaning then becomes the norm for humans. We can't look at anything. This is why economists have such problems with humans. We're not particularly rational, right? I mean, uh, our, our decisions, we mm -hmm. might think they're being rational or we're making them based on things, but they're meshed in this whole world of perceptions and meanings and context. Yeah. So then the question is, why did that happen? So, and I think there isn't an answer yet, but, but you, you speculate in the book, you know, it, 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 which also touches on the origins of language and symbolic communication. Yeah. That has to all be wrapped up in it. And, you know, what, what's our best explanation for how that leap was made? So and this is where an evolutionary context gives you a good idea, right? Because as we're seeing over the last particularly three, four, five hundred thousand years, groups, populations, groups of the genus Homo start moving out, experimenting through this incredible capacity to make tools, right? To sort of manipulate new sources of, of food and other resources, clothing, fire, right? So we're we're sort of able to push against some of the challenges of the environment in ways that other organisms can. And we're start to move, starting to move out. But, but this moving out is also really challenging because we're finding new other kinds of organisms, maybe other groups of people we've never encountered, maybe new whole climates, right, and whole landscapes, um, new sounds and smells and tastes. And as we develop sort of interpretations of those, we put meaning on them and begin to explain the world around us. And that explaining the world then creates saying, look, I know this is material. I know this is all here, but I think this is over there. Or we want to do this, and these are the reasons why we're going to do it or, or, or why we should do it. And those capacities, you could see this as almost an adaptive possibility, the ability to hope or imagine a possibility, even mm. though it's not right in front of you and you don't have any direct evidence for it allows you to push the boundaries a little bit and go more. Now, in many cases, this probably led to the extinction of the group <laughs> because they made some bad choices. Mm. But it does open opportunities for exploration, right, and for sort of mapping new environments and trying new things that other organisms don't have. And over time, hundreds of thousands of years, this facilitated an incredibly widespread of humans. And humans didn't just go out. They came back. That's what we always forget when we tell the story of human Sort of migrations and evolutions. Humans moved out, came back, they mixed, they traded, they moved around. And so all of these ideas begin to start and technologies begin to start mixing and moving. And that just creates more fodder for the imagination, which then allows more and more of these meaning laden things to be layered on. And I would argue that's part of the adaptive zone of the human. Yeah. Um, that for humans, the imagination and hope, right, is as, as important as bones and genes is part of that adaptive story. Yeah, Matt really calls that ideas having sex in his book, The Evolution of Everything. <laughs> yeah, and he tra he tracks tra uh, tra earliest trading, just you know beads, beads that or tools or whatever they're in one place that actually come from hundreds of miles or thousands of miles away. They had to be you know carried and and, and traded or whatever. Uh, but still, that's you know that implies there's some kind of cognition there of in anticipating a far future. Um, so so when did that happen and, and why? <sighs> you know, so that's that. So we could even just go back to the hunting. Let's say or hunting or even better than hunting, foraging, right? Uh, as as humans got into um, sort of really diverse, and we know that by a million years ago or so, we're already seeing diversity in, in food targets and foraging targets. Mm. And by 500,000 years ago, that includes large game hunting and a variety of other things. So, 
humans begin to really diversify sort of how they get their resources. So being able to use all these different, exploit all these different food sources is really important, but you have to understand what's available, when it's available, sort of, and the fluctuations of them. And most organisms do, right? But as humans have so many, they start to map those in different ways. And one of the arguments is, this is also about the time we're probably seeing the contemporary frontal lobe organization mm. and some of the connections that are emerging that characterize humans over the last couple hundred thousand years, right? Um, at least the endocast and the cranial compositions look at about that, that way. If that's the case, maybe what we're starting to see is this complex mapping of the environment plus increasingly complex social mapping because we're doing more symbolic things. Uh, language is probably starting to emerge. So there's more layers in just our social interactions. So the material world is becoming more complicated for us. The social world is becoming more complicated. One might argue that that creates selection or the opportunity for this sort of forward-looking cognition, this mm. idea that I'm going to be plan, I'm going to plan ahead socially and ecologically more and more. And then that opens this idea of a future unknown, right, which, mm. which then humans can project onto their hopes, their imaginations, their dreams, and I argue, eventually belief. That's can, really where it becomes centered. Can all that happen without language, or do you wrap language into it as well? I, I think you have to wrap language into that, but I'm, I'm, uh, so the whole evolution of language thing is just yeah, a mess because we're yeah. never going to solve it. Yeah, yeah. But, but my argument and, and, and uh, a couple of work that a little bit of the work that I've done on it, my argument is that we need to think about language just like every other bodily system, right? It doesn't just sort of emerge, right? It evolves slowly over time and not necessarily sequentially, like, you know, uh, you know, rudimentary grammar, then more complex grammar. I mean, it's pretty clear we don't have, like, it's not burned into our brains, this sort of grammar structure. But what is burnt into our brains is this increasingly complex levels of technology right, of material manipulation and communication. And so I think language emerges over that time, and I think you're absolutely right. Without language, we don't get this kind of trajectory that I've just described. But I think language co-evolves simultaneously and gets more, more and more complex as we ourselves become more enmeshed in really complicated social and material lives. But I can imagine, say, the workings of an internal combustion engine in my mind, I can see it, even if I would have a hard time describing it or putting it into words. Could I do that if I never had any words? I don't think so. I think, but, it, but what, what you would have before, I think you had full-blown words or sort of grammatical semantic structures that we call language. You had stone tool processes. You had the development and maintenance of fire, both of which probably show up, well, we know, show up well before we've got probably codified language per se, you know, language as we would recognize it. So skill sequences, the acquiring of skills, like a apprenticeship learning and teaching, all of those things can be done with kinds of information transfer, right? So you start to get those pictures, like you, you can probably picture all of the steps to making a good hand axe in your mind before right. language is there. Right. Now, a combustion engine is way too complicated. <laughs> yeah, to, okay, maybe that was a bad example. Right? <laughs> no, no, no. Yeah. It's the perfect example because as we get more complicated, mm. right, language then becomes this biofeedback, and the more complicated language gets, then the more complicated our technology can get. Mm. So they're pretty integrated, maybe yeah. difficult to tease apart. Uh, but uh, So let's talk about another example. Just say 
um, early hominids learn that they have to bury the dead just for co- cosmetic reasons, or the, you know, the body's going to stink and it's going to be contaminate us. So we've got to bury it. And then you imagine at some point, well, let's throw something in, uh, you know, the beads or whatever, some flowers. And then maybe when you have uh, some nice artifacts made out of metal or whatever, you, you throw those in too. But that that process that's different than the pragmatic. We got to bury the body or move. Uh, yeah, uh, uh, there's something else there. Like what? But what? You know, he's going someplace, well, or we love him, or we. I don't know what. <laughs> so well, let's let's two things first. Let me push on that and flip that right because I don't think they started burying the dead because of uh, hygiene, right? That's a common hypothesis yeah, out there. Yeah, yeah. But but it worked for a million years before that, not burying the head for hygiene. So I'm not, that's true. I don't think okay. that's a good, yeah, that's yeah. the best. Uh, so, so they actually started burying dead for some other reason. Mm. Um, and, and, you know, it, it, it starts slowly and it happens a few times. Atapuerca 400,000 years ago, uh, Homo naledi 200-something thousand years ago. Then in the last 100, 150,000 years, we see more and more and more occurrences of it. So, Let's go back to the elephants, right? The elephants caress the bones of the dead. They keep going back to the place. They have this kind of connection, which they may not be able to explain what it is, but they have one. Right. So what if our earlier ancestors had that kind of connection with the bodies and, and at some point decided we need to do something for them, right? Not mm. just leave them to mm. be eaten or what have you. And so really, rather than a utilitarian origin, mm. burial probably has a meaningful origin, and it became much more utilitarian. So once we started building uh, towns and cities, we had to bury those dead people because they were getting us all sick. Right. Yeah, okay. That's that. I like that. I think that's right. I think that's that's more likely. Um, and then, so then it becomes an emotional, the evolution of emotions. What are emotions? You know, they're proxies to drive behavior. Um, I, don't, I don't need to calculate calories or whatever. I just feel hungry. Uh, or I don't need to, it, my other fun example from evolutionary psychology, uh, mate selection, you know, the waist to hip ratio of 0.67 in the hourglass figure in, in women in the, in the pyramid shaped upper bodies in men and, and so on. Clear complexion, symmetrical faces, but nobody walks into a nightclub, you know, a singles club or whatever with calipers and making, you just look and you go, wow, I like that. You're right. So that emotional, that feeling you have drives behavior, whatever. So then I could see you could extrapolate up to, you know, moral issues, you, you, why you feel yeah. disgust over something bad somebody did or something, you know, loving or caring. And then so then we get to where we just were. So I, I'm attached to this person and you can do the neurochemistry of oxytocin and, you know, serotonin and, uh, and all that stuff. And, 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 and but but still that connection's there, even if they're dead, that person there on the ground I love that person or I have a connection with that person like the elephant does. That has to be a deep social mammalian kind of thing. Yeah, it is. So that social bonding is really incredible. And it's for social mammals. That's it, right? Those bonds are the center of our universe. Um, But for humans, the bonding is even more intense, right? And then if we think about our our recent ancestors with all of this meaning tied up into those bonds, you, Mm. you think, how could they not be treating the dead? with this incredible sort of compassion, especially because of the intensity of the bonds that they had during life. I think that's really interesting. Uh, but I, I do have to push on one thing, that yeah. waist to hip ratio stuff, oh. uh, it doesn't work. It, you know, it's really been refuted in a number of non-weird societies. But what's, what's really interesting is that we really have 
attraction, right? That I mean, that is, there are things people hone in on and different societies hone in on different things. And there's some common patterns, but it varies a lot. But what's really interesting is that the bonds people form frequently don't or no, don't necessarily correlate with sort of ideal mates or ideal friends. We often form incredibly tight bonds with individuals that we probably shouldn't be investing so much time in. And I find <laughs> yeah, that, that could be, yeah. range of stuff really interesting. But if you think about if that diversity of intense bonding is, is something that shows up early in human evolution, what you said is exactly right. You know, when people who were the center of your existence die and are no longer there, obviously, if you're a, a cognitively complex organism, you're going to feel something like in the elephants. But if you're a human who's building a meaning laden ecosystem, then maybe the, that's yeah. where you start to see sort of these different sort of treatments and then explanations for it. Yeah, I had Joseph Hendrick on the podcast with his book that, you know, the, on, on the weirdest people in, on, in yeah. the world. Yeah, it is disturbing, you know, in terms of like the replication crisis in science. So how much of social science depends on the study of 18 to 20 year olds at elite uh, American <laughs> universities? You know, like like they they, they represent humanity. Um, I have a it's feeling getting we, better. It's getting better. Yes, What's yes. nice is people are recognizing it. But but that's, I mean, this is one of the things about studying human evolution as well, right? We have a finite, like, sample, um, and it's a small sample. So we, we like to look at contemporary things and do studies. But I got to tell you, um, you know, everyone tries to look either at college students or a few of the remaining forager peoples on the planet. And like, right. well, those are the two modern human groups we're <laughs> right. compare Neanderthals to. I'm like... I think we could expand our data sets a little. <laughs> uh, now, I haven't looked at this in, in quite a few years, but I thought David Buss had um, done some um, uh, non-weird studies on uh, what people find attractive and there's certain uh, human universals there, or is that not held up? So both David Buss has done a bunch of the work, and so is Schmidt, David Schmidt. Um, so they've looked at, and there's a whole group of scholars that are looking at the waist-to-hip ratio falls by the wayside in most cases because mm. the variance becomes pretty it, it's it's hard because of body type shape and form okay. um uh but um certain things about facial roundness and symmetry um hold up in some things mm. and then what we see is in different cultures or different societies there's different sort of physiological attributes that are it's sort of really prominent um so it's it's i think it depends on the culture and the environment of context right there are fewer and fewer sort of gloss universals. Um, but again, that's hard to assess now. It's like reconstructing the past is hard, but reconstructing the present is difficult. I mean, you know, you, you know, the work in psychology, we ask questions, but trying to dis disentangle those questions from, you know, what people believe as opposed to what yeah, <laughs> reflect yeah. evolutionary processes. What, what about their argument that um, these features we're discussing are proxies for genetic health? And therefore, we evolved emotions to be attracted to this rather than that because that's better genetically. Is that that that's that's the one place where both where symmetry holds up a little bit, but waist to hip doesn't. So it doesn't hold okay. up to fecundity or to lactation frequency or ability or to overall lifetime fitness. So interesting. Um, it's 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 not clear what waist to, and waist hip to hip ratio changes across the lifetime. So it would even if it did work, it would only work in a particular. A slot of female reproductive age. Right. Um, interestingly, right. when the females are least successful at reproducing, right, physiologically. So it, there's a lot of great stuff to be doing out there, but I, I think we have to be very careful because, you know, there's so much data, but there's still a lot of holes in the data. Yeah. 
Yeah, let's talk about um, the evolution of, well, awe, wonder, aesthetic appreciation, uh, beauty, art, music, dance. You know, I did my my doctoral dissertation was on Alfred Russell Wallace and particularly how he differed from Darwin. And then I ended up writing a biography of Wallace. But he was always bothered by the aesthetic sense or why we should be able to do mathematics or appreciate music or whatever. Why would uh, why would natural selection need to do that? And, and for that matter, why do you need a brain this big when a brain the size of a chimp is perfectly good? Uh, for uh, surviving. And, and so, you know, that gets to this deeper issue. Is it, you know, an adaptation or is it an exaptation or a spandrel? That is to say, does our enjoyment of music, I think Steve Pinker calls it cheesecake in an old analogy. <laughs> you know, it's just sort of an accidental byproduct of something else or it's perfectly adapted for group selection purposes or whatever. What, give us your thoughts on, on that. Um, how about all of the above? <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> the problem is, like with something like music, I mean, we can think about it in multiple ways. I think, uh, you know, Stephen Mithin has, has made some interesting arguments about singing Neanderthals, right? About music oh, and the right. role in human yes, evolution. Oh, right. Yes, that's right. Um, and, and, and there's a, a number of studies recently looking at how rhythm is probably important in early communication systems. So if you've ever looked at or listened to stone napping, right, there are actually there's consistent rhythms and good acquisition or learning of the stone tool actually means mapping rhythmically. Oh, wow. Uh, to the napper, wow. To the master napper. And so, so there's some argument that rhythm and this sort of turn taking and back and forth actually can result in an adaptive complex facilitating language emergence and other kinds of communication. Right. So that isn't music per se, but it, it underlines, mm. I think, some of those things. Right. And so you could see a cognitive suite of processes that become fine tuned on sort of rhythmic acquisition as part of this larger social and structural network. And then, you know, by 40, 60,000 years ago, we've got a couple examples of flutes, um, which means that some kind of music or rhythm banging of stuff is probably much older. But by 40, 50, 30,000 years ago, we absolutely see humans modifying bone and wood to create some kind of resonance. Um, hmm. You know, what, did the, what function did that serve? I mean, you're right. It could be just a kind of a joy, a sense, but it reflects, I think, a deeper adaptation for this uh, appreciation of rhythm as part of a communication mode or yeah. learning or even stone tool making. I think what Pinker means is that um, like the, the development of sugar, sweet things evolve for one reason and cheesecake is just a later version of that. Right. So the enjoyment of rhythm in napping has some ad adaptive purpose for it right there, but then you carry on well drumming or whatever it just feels good. It just tastes good, the equivalent of tasting good. So you could have both, I, I suppose. Absolutely. And, and tasting good might be doing something for social bonding, right? Yeah. I mean, maybe making the cheesecake and sharing it actually reflects this whole suite of social adaptations that allows you to make these strong bonds to facilitate rearing of the children, to bond the group together in tough times or things yeah. like that, right? Yeah. So I think... I, 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 Obviously, a bunch of stuff are, you know, spandrels or byproducts just because of there's so much going on. But I but I, I'm hesitant to sort of cast up off and say it isn't relevant because it might be part of this larger system or process. Right. Yeah. yeah. Um, so, for example, I mean, cu cuisine. Right. We don't need to make all these incredible kinds of food. We just need to warm something up to break down some of the bonds so that we can absorb the nutrients. Uh, but nowhere do humans do that. Everywhere right. humans make all this extra effort to spice stuff up, to right. cut things, to break right. something well. 
And obviously that means something. It isn't just a byproduct. Yeah, see here, that's why I like your approach, the meaning approach, because otherwise people turn to like group selection. Well, there has to be some way that this brings them and makes them a tighter group and more competitive with the other group and, and so forth. And I don't think you really need that. No, and, and it's, you know, not that, you know, I mean, I think there are some good group selection arguments. I think there's some interesting stuff out there, but but does everything have to be specifically adapted or evolved for specific function or can we get a sort of a more dynamic system? And that's where, so the meaning thing obviously has adaptive processes and possibilities, but, but the individual items of meaning, we don't have to explain everything as being the product of targeted selection, right? Yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, so I think that's interesting. So we can have our cheesecake, be really interested in it, have it <laughs> right. connected to this deep history, but just eat it and have a good time, too. And, and, and have you published or, or, or posted a statement on, on, on group selection, whether you accept it or reject it? Or you, 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 you... So, I mean, I, I, I think that right now we're in and I've written a lot on this just on sort of the extended evolutionary synthesis and thinking about sort of dynamic trajectories. So I'm very interested in human niche construction. I'm very interested in, obviously, in understanding sort of uh, the different patterns and context of selection and how selection interacts with different evolutionary processes. I think we've underplayed drift a lot, especially mm. in human evolution. There's a lot of, of really critical things that drift is doing that, that we're trying to invent sto just so stories. Explain, explain drift for pe people that oh, not right, this. Sorry. So uh, uh, genetic drift is um, you get all sorts of small changes um, that usually in the big picture get, you know, you get a change in one direction, you get a change in another direction because they're small mutations. But in small populations or in certain instances, those small changes that didn't show up for a, an, ad, an adaptive reason, that is, they weren't selected for because of particular environmental challenges. So you just get these sort of changes. And what's really interesting is that for humans, a lot of the genetic and skull morphology, right? A lot of the changes in our skulls, which we used to think was so central to human adaptations, actually, most of that is probably drift. Um, oh, interesting. huge variation in Pleistocene, you know, last two million years, uh, cranial variation. And a lot of that probably isn't functional. Uh, interesting. Not functional in the sense that the different variants themselves have different fitness values. Yeah. So, but, but I mean, back to the group selection. So, I mean, Darwin himself made some really nice arguments for different ways in which we can think about the sort of patterns and processes of selection, right? And so we can, we can note selection at the molecular level. We can sort of model selection at the individual and group levels. I think the contemporary understanding of how evolution happens just recognizes that there are multiple processes ongoing. Yeah. Um, and it's, 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 it's fascinating. Like this great evolutionary biology right now is at this incredible moment where there's a lot going on. The problem is there's a lot going on. It's right. Really yeah, I've I've read a bit on that. I, I tend to be skeptical of group selection, as does Dawkins and Pinker. I know there's arguments, you know, David Sloan Wilson. I, I know him and I've had him on the podcast and he makes a pretty good case. It seems like it's just tied to this one thing, human altruism. Why are we nice to other people? You know, and, and Dawkins takes us from the selfish gene to, you know, kin selection and reciprocal altruism. And from there, we're kind of tricked into thinking strangers are honorary friends or members of our tribe because we know them through mass communication or whatever. And uh, so you don't need group selection. But, but, but we're really hung up on that, you know, that problem of altruism. You know, why would natural selection select anybody to sacrifice themselves that are not their genetic kin and kind? Anyway. 
Well, let, let's no. That's a great. It's a great question, and I think it's one of the big evolutionary challenges out there. But let's step back, for example, and this is some of the arguments I've made in other places, at and drawing on many others. What if the like sort of basal unit? Um, we can take humans if we want, hominins, let's say, but we could also take many social mammals. We could take canids, right? Uh, African hunting dogs, uh, for example. What if the sort of evolutionary unit, sort of their niche, their adaptive zone is the social unit, right? Um, it's not the individual in the sense that, of course, individuals make up the social unit, but but their mode of making it in the world is being in a pack, mm. right? So okay. then we could say that that being in a pack, right, provides a whole suite of both individual and structural benefits, but it's not like the pack is made up of 10 individuals. The pack itself has emergent, you know, means more than just those 10 individuals because it is the entire unity and those connections in the pack that allows you to do things. So then you could argue that there has been a kind of ecological niche constructed where the social group, right, is one of the main actors. Right. Um, so rather than I, the problem with individual altruism is we're going to just chase our tails forever trying to explain that with models. Right. Yeah, and and yeah. you can you know, there's great prisoners dilemma models. There's all these different ways. I know. Can argue I, for I'm always skeptical of mathematical it. models. It's like it, yeah. let's look out the window and see what's actually going out there in the biological world. Um, yeah. 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 I really think we should watch organisms and let them demonstrate for us how things do stuff. Um, mathematical models are good to set up these ideas, but you know, back to this whole my whole argument about the origin of belief, it's centered on this capacity, this possibility that humans have to be considered always in groups because it's in groups that we do our stuff, right? Yeah. I mean, what's the what best way to kill a human, right? Isolate him or her. Oh yes, I I, I was fascinated by uh, Christopher Baum's book, uh, The Origins of Morality, where he I had no idea that there was a database of how uh, hunter gatherer groups killed other or treated bullies. And, and, and free riders and so on. And if it gets bad enough, they just take Og out for a, a, a hike and come back without him. Oh, okay. And also he points out well, how hard it is to kill somebody, particularly if it's a big, massive male, you know, he who, who can fight back. You, you got to have a bunch of guys in on it. And and this whole idea and that that the social is the unit of analysis for humans, I think is really important because we always try to explain, well, let's take one individual and model all of these different scenarios. But, but the problem with that is we know for hominins and actually for many social mammals, um, it's never just one, right? That, that's actually an incorrect model. Um, we have that heuristic, that, that mode of modeling evolutionary processes. But of course, evolution only happens at population levels, right? right, right. So it, it's weird that we make these individual explanations for organisms whose adaptive zone is the social group and who, where we know evolution can only be modeled really at the population level. Uh, so you talk about the evolution of dogs, and, and from there, I, I wanted to k- k- kind of catch a, catch us up on where we are with that from wolves. Uh, but from there, I want to talk about self-domestication. I mean, to what extent, like Richard Rangham's theory, that we domesticated ourselves in, in, in sort of a strange way? Yeah, I mean, so I I really appreciate the whole self-domestication theory of Rangham, uh, uh, Brian Hare. I mean, there's a number of people I think who've written some a whole bunch of scholars who've done great work uh, in this area. Um, I'm I'm a little hesitant because I think the term self-domestication uh, almost is like a negative. It's like saying, oh, we sort of wore ourselves down to this sort of 
lesser version or nicer <laughs> version. Yeah. Um, and, yeah. you know, I don't, I don't know that we're a nicer version that we were. Um, uh, I think we're capable probably of more horrific stuff now than we ever have been. However, we are definitely over the sort of evolutionary history, getting better and better at sort of um, working together, collaborating, coordinating. So I think that coordination and collaboration, the cooperation, I think definitely happens. And that's that's a common argument in this self-domestication, right? Rather than sort of intergroup, intragroup competition, it's intergroup cooperation and collaboration. And I think there's really good evidence that that's the center now. But that doesn't mean we all ran through the fields of daisies holding hands, right? <laughs> Cooperation within a group allows us to do horrible things between groups. Yes, so, yes, so, right. So I think I, I like the the motif of the self domestication, but but I would I would push back against. I don't think it's really domestication. I think it's the way humans have sort of adapted into this particular niche of of uh, that we have. Yeah. So the argument, you know, the analogy with the dogs is that you know as they as wolves became domesticated into dogs, their skulls jaws got smaller and the teeth got smaller and and so forth as as kind of a uh, a byproduct of selection for less aggressiveness and more friendliness or whatever the silver foxes thing is always thrown up although i think there's some recent skepticism about that those silver fox studies of domestication i don't know if you want to comment on that Yeah. The, so, I mean, those are great. So the, the domestication studies with the foxes, right, with uh, uh, Ludmilla Trout and uh, and recently Lita Gatkin's sort of overview of those that he's got written a really good book on it. Um, so that the study's there. I mean, right. When you select for things like sort of fearlessness, like less fear of human hands or select for some of these things, you get all of these morphologies. You get very nice foxes in the sense that they sort of whine and lick your hand and sort of behave a little bit like domestic dogs. But you also get this cascade effect of a morphological variance, which is really interesting. Yeah, the story is a little bit more complicated, right? Um, because there's actually, they also selected for really angry ones or aggressive ones. And, and those had some different uh, correlates. Right, right. Um, but, but the story of domestication of dogs is really interesting because you do gracility, right? So it's less robust. But that doesn't necessarily mean less aggressive, right? We've actually domestically created incredibly aggressive dog breeds. Right, oh, right. Uh, and yes, created right. those kinds of things. Pitbulls. And and yeah, well, even though pitbulls are very sweet dogs, but they're they're trainable in a very sort of yeah. aggressive way, yeah. and their morphology facilitates that. But no, I think the real interesting thing is humans have gotten more gracile. We've gotten less robust, but it is not clear at all that that correlates with reduced interpersonal violence. Mm. In fact. One could argue, based on the archaeological record, that we've seen an uptick in interpersonal violence, hmm. not in the small group sense, but in the larger sense, and that more and more of our technology facilitates violence by smaller and smaller people. So hmm. this, the idea that getting smaller means we're less violent, I, I'm not sure I totally buy that. But getting smaller in the sense of smaller teeth and more sort of gracile or more slender skeletons definitely reflects, you know, uh, different kinds of labor different kinds of food sources and like more kinds of collaboration between groups. So individuals, each individual is not as responsible mm. for just themselves. And that, 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 that there's a more of a sort of a cooperative context there. Yeah. I think bone made that point too, that if everybody's in on the, the murder of the bully, then no one of us are guilty of a murder. And therefore there there's less likely to be a revenge against any one person. Right. Or, 
the other, the same flip side from what Bohm says, if, if all of us sort of socially are brought up and grow into a world where bullies are weird, um, mm. we're really not going to have the need to murder the bully mm. on a regular basis. That's <laughs> sort of the argument that Richard Rangan has been making recently, yeah. too. Yeah, I and, and it's also the argument that um, the new book, uh, uh, Survival of the Friendliest, is a really good, oh, right. I think, uh, take on that. Yeah, yeah. Um, all right, let's talk about um, now the transition to uh, farming and cities and so on. I love that you, you mentioned Gobekli Tepe. I had never heard of it till I encountered Graham Hancock, the alternative archaeologist. You know, part of my day job is to uh, engage these <laughs> these people. And uh, he's a pretty interesting guy. And he was uh, he makes the point that, you know, uh, that archaeologists have long had this view of humans that you can't have monumental architecture without huge populations, and therefore you need cities, therefore you need farming and agriculture and division of labor and, and an economy and so on. And, and here you have this Gobekli Tepe, which is pretty impressive, built by hunter-gatherers of a couple hundred people. How did they do this? Now, of course, you know, he goes off in a different direction. Well, there's this right. advanced civilization long ago. Okay, let's set that aside and just say, maybe we just underestimated what hunter-gatherers are able to do. Not maybe. We did and we continue <laughs> to do it. There's a whole like industry, as you well know, of people saying, well, it's people from space or people, you know, there's some advanced Atlanteans yeah. who disappeared. I'm like, we just stop and look at the data. Let's look at these. There's enormous evidence that fairly deep in time, human collaboration and creativity is pretty substantial and that forager peoples have been able to do incredible sort of landscape modifications, right? Mm. We tend to think of sort of something like Gobelti Tepe or these big monumental architectures like the, the heighten, the epitome of complexity. Well, let's look at deep time um, aboriginal practices in Australia of land burning and land manipulation. We've got thousands of years mm. of hundreds of miles of habitat terrain sort of agroforestry based on burning cycles and all these other kinds of things. There's a couple recent uh, uh, articles that show that Beginning about 11,000 years ago in Southeast Asia, forests were radically restructured by human selective burning and changing and all that. So, so yeah, you know, monumental architecture is cool, but, but the human ability, especially even foragers' ability to really manipulate the world around them and to build things or, or modify their ecologies is pretty deep in time. I mean, we started off by talking about the Neanderthals, right? Mm. So that, that site in it's the Germany, the cave yeah. where they took these stalactites or stalagmites. I forget which one is the one on top or the one on the bottom. And they stacked them around in a circle way in the back of this cave where it's dark and then built a fire in the middle. That's, that's pretty impressive. Tight hanging on tight. So it's the like tight are the top ones and might ah. grow up from the bottom. That's how I always remember that. <laughs> oh, that's good. And, yeah, oh, but I you, always forget. You also pointed out go Beckley Tepley isn't the only example of that. In that time frame, what eleven thousand to maybe fifteen thousand years ago or so, so that would yeah. that would require considerable social cooperation, communication, symbolic reasoning, planning of the future. You're going to go over there. You're going to pull at this time, and the six of us are going to pull at this moment. I mean, that you had to have some pretty much modern cognition. Yes, modern cognition, and I think even more importantly, belief. You had to convince oh, right. all these people that there was a good, there is a reason for building this stuff. Oh, it took right. them decades, right, to put this together, of coming together annually or whatever they did to sort of organize this. Obviously, these people were really committed to it. And, you know, in retrospect, did it build them a giant empire? Did it get them all these things? No, but it got them something. 
Right. right? It right. meant there was enough for them to commit probably across generations to this incredible monumental enterprise. And you're right that things like that start showing up all over the place. Um, so and, they didn't and, they and didn't many live of there. Them don't have immediate benefits. So they didn't live there. So they were going there for something. So there you infer some sort of spiritual or religious or social or something. Like right? a night, it's a, like, it's like a nightclub or <laughs> you know what? Yeah, exactly. No, it's probably some kind of thing that today we would call religious, but I don't know if they would have seen it in the or same way. Maybe it's like way. a Burning Man. Is, yeah, <laughs> that's right. They all came to hang out and party and build like giant twelve foot stone monoliths that they. Well, but you see, them. but I I use that example because you know when we think of religion today, it, it, we we can't think of it like that ten thousand years ago, whatever. I mean, it's just their thinking must have been so different. So what do you mean by spiritual being spiritual or in awe or religious 10,000 years ago? What would that mean? Well, so I like to think of this, uh, this anthropologist sort of borrowing from this guy, Clifford Geertz, that, that basically religiousness, right, the capacity to be religious is this capacity to sort of take your imagination and your experience, meld all things together with this kind of more than the here and now, right, the sense that there's more in the world than the material and, and, and let that influence you in certain ways. But it doesn't mean, right, that's the capacity humans have. Religion, I think, is the organized mm. theological institutional yeah. Yeah. structures. And so I'm gonna, I want to put religion in the contemporary sense aside for a moment and point out that I think, as I argue in the book, this capacity to be religious, what people call spiritual, but that's a bad because that's a particular kind of religion. Spirits is a very specific reference. Yeah, right? yeah. This, this capacity to be religious, um, I think, is pretty deep. And so I think it's been played out in many, many ways. And to think of how someone experienced this 11,000 years ago by modeling it on a contemporary Christian or, or Muslim or Hindu, I, I think that's right. pretty dangerous, yeah. right? I, yeah. I don't think those are one-to-one -one correlations. But, you know, like go back to Gobekli Tepe, you have these massive T-shaped stones and it, carved in bas-relief are these animals. Yeah. And they're not plopped on there. They, they carved the stone pillar around it so that the animal emerges from it. That's hard to do. Yeah. That's really impressive. So it, then the next question is, why? Why did they do that? What do those animals mean? That's the problem without a time machine. That's the whole frustrating thing about studying human evolution is that there are things about meaning like symbols, right? Symbols are defined right, by the culture that creates them, right? What they mean is defined by that culture and agreed upon. So without a time machine, we can't go back and know exactly what they meant, but we can get a sense, right? So for example, animals, what's fascinating is that animal imagery shows up tens of thousands of years before imagery of human faces. Hmm. What about, so the, what about the human hand? You know, you see those. The hand is the first sort of human thing to show up, but oh. animal imagery shows up even before that. Wow. Okay. It's really, and then hands show up, but faces really show up much, much, much later. Interesting. Um, and even the early human figurines rarely have any facial uh, characteristics. Right. So wh why? I, you know, well, one of the arguments is that you know humans saw each other, but animals were so central in their living and their making it, so that maybe they placed mm. a certain kind mm. of meaning on animals that they want to represent, whereas the humans were right there and they're interacting. Who knows? But, right. but it is interesting. So you're talking about Gobelli Tepe. Why, why do they make these giant pillars with the animals coming out at you? Well, for a reason. We yeah. just don't know what yeah. it does. Yeah. But, but I would argue that the reason is not as important as the understanding it gives us. That they did this because it meant something to them. Because there was a belief 
that doing it this way would cause something, make them feel some way, uh, mm. mean something more than just the material image of that animal. Yeah. Okay, then we have the rise of cities and stuff, and then income inequality, and before you know it, here we are, still fighting about this. Uh, to what extent were, are, are, do you think hunter-gatherers were pretty egalitarian, or is it just that they didn't have any stuff to redistribute, so everybody was equally poor, and that's just the way it was? I think there's this really unfortunate misrepresentation of what egalitarian means, right? Yeah. Um, the anthropologist Polly Weissner does a great job of basically saying, look, egalitarian means they, they have stuff, but they sort of share the stuff. No one owns too much stuff. Yeah. But it doesn't mean they all get along. It doesn't mean there's no jockeying for position or trying to be leaders. It just means there's no formal inequality of material stuff, and there's no formal hierarchy of this is the leader and this isn't. But we're humans, right? That complexity, that jealousness, that sort of desire to help others or to dislike someone, all of that's still there. So when we talk about egalitarian societies, what we're really talking about is societies that have relative equality materially. Um, and those are small-scale societies. They can have lots of stuff, okay. right? All right. Um, but that's, there isn't that much inequity. But, but that, you know, doesn't mean they don't have social hierarchies, right? Mm. Or that material uh, egalitarianism is just a default, like that's the way humans are if you don't have other stuff. No, 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 there's a lot of complexity there. David Graeber, the anthropologist in his book, Debt and a few other things, has really, really argued effectively that, you know, this early inequality, these societies were very complicated mm. and very complex of, you know, different structures. Just because they didn't have material poverty or wealth doesn't mean they weren't complicated. Um, but as we get more materials and more storage and more property, then we start to get this, ex this expansion of hierarchies and inequality, and that brings whole new issues with it. Right. So you have to have some kind of government or government system with somebody running it, and you need taxes to pay for that. So you need to you know, confiscate people's wealth, and then people at the top have more than people at the bottom. And, you know, and then 5,000 years later, you know, we're still fighting about this. Um, you know, so the question is, why did that happen, and could it have happened another way? I remember this book in the late 80s, The Chalice and the Blade. Yeah. I forget the name yeah. of the woman that wrote that book, but her, her argument was basically it was, patriarchy was the problem. Uh, and that, uh, you know, a more feminine way of structuring society is a more equal, you know, kind of horizontal, uh, egalitarian way of doing it. I have no idea how, how well that hypothesis is held up, but but it brings up this, the, you know, sort of gender roles and gender specialization or division of labor and that sort of thing. So so give us your thoughts on, on that. Well, those things emerge simultaneously, right? So we start to see, so in, in obviously gender is really deep in history, but how gender panned out and how equity or inequity across genders pan out um, in human evolution is more complicated. Recently, right, the last, you know, six, seven thousand years, we start to see evidence, right, of material gender, and we start to see differences in male and female bones, right, and right. nutrition and things like that. We don't see that earlier, right, which is really interesting. It's not that mm. there wasn't gender there or some patterns. It just didn't map to the current versions of it. Mm. But with increased sedentism, urbanization, and increased inequality and in property and sort of division of um, sort of the way in which humans are making a living – we do start to see increased gender inequality in many, but not all societies, right? Mm. At the same time, we're seeing a bunch of different experiments of different kinds of economic systems, 
right? So today we're, we're worth one, I mean, there's a bunch of different economic systems, but we have one main system globally right now. Is that the only way it could be? No, no, there could be multiple. There's many ways to do this. But once we're in a system, it's really hard to shift that system, right? Uh, and the same goes for our contemporary sort of gender issues. Sort of there's been uh, centuries or millennia of the development of particular kinds of structures. And in the West, at least, and in much of the world, you do have patriarchy and economic systems sort of in place. And that creates this whole cascade, right? Uh, this way of being. Is it the only way of being? No, but right. it is the way right. of being we are right now. So, I wonder if a lot of those early experiments are just gone. They, they didn't, you know, yeah. they didn't fossilize or they didn't leave cities or stuff. Um, yeah, well. That's the frustrating part because it would be really nice to have a compendium of all this. What's really interesting is the archaeological record is getting more and more robust and we see many alternatives or alternatives, many different ways of doing this now starting to see out of different areas, Meso the Central America, South America, the Middle East, different sort of systems and patterns. And another thing is we're starting to see better, I think, treatment of ethnographic and historical documentation that, that shows the sort of tweaks on these kinds of systems. Um, but you're right. Most of these just disappeared. Right. Yeah, it would be good to know that before we colonize Mars so we know what kind of system we should set up there. <laughs> <laughs> Another one of my pet projects that may not happen in my lifetime. But, you know, we in other words, we've been running experiments all over the world for 10,000 years on different economic, political and economic systems. Which are the best ones? You know, well, <laughs> that's a hard question. But I wish everyone approached it that way rather than saying this is like what I write in my chapter. We believe that, well, this is the way economics is. Right. I'm like, actually, no, no, it can be many, many different ways. Um why don't we why don't we look at the data and let the data inform a little bit about our decisions rather than just believing something is right or wrong? Yeah. So, I mean, it, it appears we need to allow people to pursue their own self-interests. And out of that, most of us benefit to some extent. But on the other hand, if you have it too unregulated, you get, you know, one percent of the population is ninety nine percent of the wealth. You know, it's one of these power laws. That just seems to happen if you let the thing uh, grind along without too much regulation. So you stamp on it some, you know, tax systems to try to balance it a little bit. And and I, I and I guess in a way you could say all the different countries of the world today are experiments, and all fifty different states in the United States are different experiments. Not a, not all of them have state income tax. California has here where I am has amongst the highest. You can move to Texas, uh, like a few of my friends have, uh, and they have no state income tax, but they have slightly higher property tax. So if you're moving there to buy an expensive <laughs> house, you're going to pay for it anyway. But anyway, in other words, you know, these are, um, if we think of them as experiments in that we're collecting data using the comparative method, you know, like Jared Diamond did so effectively in Guns, Germs, and Steel, you know, we can't run the experiments, but the experiments are happening naturally. So let's see what we can collect on that. Um, I, so I think that bigger experiment, too, is a really interesting thing because actually all, like, let's take all the 50 states in the U.S., they're all doing slightly different things, but they're all doing it under one particular kind of market economic system, right, instead of expectations. So really, it's an experiment, but it's not that diverse. Right, so the yes, better yes. one would be, let's look internationally and see, are there different market systems that are doing different things? Um, but, but that's how, I mean, that's what macroeconomics is about, but most people are really interested in microeconomics right now. Yeah, so few yeah. people want to ask those big questions. Yeah, but let's say, well, let's go back in time to 100,000 years or whatever. And it's better if I make the arrow points and you make the chopping tools or whatever. And then we kind of end up specializing. 
But for some reason, the demand for your tools are higher than mine, and you end up with more money, and then all of a sudden, the the, the division starts there. The inequality begins, and then resentments or you know, I don't know what, and then you have to... I think it was Baum that made the point that hunter-gatherers are not that egalitarian in the sense that you got to have a lot of rules to make sure that they redistribute the meat. Otherwise, the selfish instinct kicks Absolutely. in, and, and I'm going to keep some extra for myself. It's not always, I, you know, I'd push against a little bit of the selfish instinct, but, but yeah, there are tons of rules in egalitarian societies. That's what Polly Weissner really argues, too. It's like, look, all of these egalitarian societies are just layered with rules <laughs> right. to, to make the society work. Societies are hard, right? You got to work at it. Um, but so 100,000 years ago, there was no cash, right? So what's really interesting is how do we even imagine a world where cash doesn't exist? I mean, we can't do that now, right? But 10,000 years ago, 20,000 years ago, that existed. And so how did exchanges occur, right? Were they valuation trades or, or was value totally a different concept? Mm-hmm. Of, so that's, that's what's interesting to think about in the evolution. And so we are in a particular economic system, right? A particular market economy with cash. And so it's hard for us to think outside of that for possibilities. Um, but that's, that's how belief systems work, right? I recommend <laughs> the book uh, Treconomics. It's, it's about post what is it? Post-economic world, you know, like in 2300 or whatever, there'll be no money. There'll be so much stuff. And you just go to the replicator and you say, you know, Earl Grey hot and you get your tea and the cup. <laughs> I guess it replicates the cup, too. And uh, and you can essentially have everything you want. Um, I mean, that's just so inconceivable. But, I, I, you know, somebody conceived it. They wrote a book about it and a TV show. So, <laughs> um, all right, let's get in another hot button issue, uh, uh, violence and, you know, human violence. We've touched on it, you know, the our, our inner demons versus our better angels and, you know, the dials turning up and down in society. In a way, I always make the analogy with, you know, athletes. Most athletes want a really good rule system with referees that enforce the rules fairly because they, everybody knows that everybody wants to try to get a little bit of an edge, but you don't want it be, to be done unfairly. It's fairness that people want. So in a way, you kind of need a government and, a, and an economic system with checks and balances and rules because uh, we want to play the game and see who's the best or, you know, play the economic game and, and see who comes out on top. But it, but in a way, if, as long as it's fair, uh, and I think there was a recent study on this. It wasn't that people were bothered by income inequality. It was how it was gotten, if it was gotten fairly or not. That's what bothered people. I, forget, I think Jonathan Haidt was one of the co-authors on that study. Anyway, um, uh, I'm not sure where I'm going. Oh, I'm going with a, a sort of a human nature, in the structure of human nature. We have a little bit of, of, of both, and so you need these rules to keep it in check there. So you touch on uh, human violence. To what extent were we warlike? It, well, I guess this depends on how you define war and what what do you mean by violence? Right. Yeah. And I mean, so I, I would put I totally push against uh, uh, this categorization of angels and demons in our past. Right. Uh, I would argue that the capacity for intense collaboration and cooperation, coordination and social bonding enables us to be the most peaceful, peace loving, compassionate humans right? Organisms on the planet. And that exact same skill set allows us to build armies, to torture, to be cruel and to commit genocide, right? So I, I don't like to think that there's an angel and a demon sort of yeah. fighting it out on our shoulders here, right. or that if you strip away the veneer of culture, you've got like a, you know, a Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde thing going on. I'd rather ask the question, well, what are the patterns in which violence and aggression is exhibited, right? What is the evolutionary record of it? And, and here, I would argue that the recent book and the incredible article by uh, uh, Mark Kissel and Nam Kim, uh, Emerging Warfare, 
Uh, it's a really oh, good I don't know this. overview. Oh, it's fantastic. Uh, you should this, chat with them. They're this really is, good. This is an article or a book? Uh, so they have an article in the Yearbook of Physical Anthropology 2019 and a 2018 book with Rutledge called Emerging Warfare. Okay. Um, and, and it sort of tracks all of the primate stuff and all of the archaeological and fossil evidence and then really arrives at this fascinating place where, of course, warfare, the capacity evolved. But the capacity is connected to war, it's connected to peace, it's connected to different kinds of violences. And so rather than asking war versus peace, we should be asking, like, what are the patterns and processes of cognitive and social structures, right? And then how are they playing out in the contemporary landscape? Um, and so I think, you know, are humans innately violent or innately peaceful? The answer is no, right? right? We have right. incredible capacities to do those two things in very important ways. But I will say that um, organized warfare, I, the data are pretty clear that it shows up easily observably in the fossil record in the last 10,000, 14,000 years, yeah, right? Yeah. Um, things that most people would agree is warfare. Earlier than that, it's very hard to tell. Organism, humans were hitting each other over the head with stuff, yeah. and killing each other on occasion. <laughs> right, right. Was it this kind of much more complicated uh, situation? And here's what Mark Kissel and Nam Kim argue, is that you need language and sort of symbols and all these kinds of beliefs to really get warfare to work. Yeah. And, and I agree with them. Yeah, in your model, you need that kind of symbolic us as a group. And here, you know, like Paul Bloom's book, Against Empathy, you know, the dark side of empathy is that if I care so deeply about my group and those guys over there are threatening us, I am really going to stick it to them. Right. So that would be along the lines of what you're talking about here. Yeah. And it's instead of either or, it's not a binary, right? right it's these right. capacities. And that's why we got to ask, what do the data show us? What is the neurobiology? What are the hormone data? What does the archaeological and fossil evidence show us? It shows us these patterns and processes that humans are then able to apply in these different contexts. And so, you know, why does war happen? That's a great question, but there is not a single answer, right? right. <laughs> it depends on which right. war you're talking about and which context, though. So. Yeah, so they're fighting over food, or they're fighting over women, or they're fighting over territory. I guess the motives are multiple. Or they're fighting over God. Or they're fighting over God, yes. Well, okay, now we're up to the modern world and the concerns, of the darker side yeah. of belief, right? I mean, yeah. it's ideology that really drives the body count up. Um, you can have these you know, small skirmishes that where a few people die, and maybe it's a low population, so it's a high percentage of the population, so it looks bad on a graph. But in fact, to kill you know m millions of people, you really need ideology, not just religion. I you mean, do. it could be Marxist ideology yeah. or Nazism or fascism or whatever. No, you have to have this incredible belief because, it, as you pointed out, it's actually really hard to get humans to kill. Right? Yeah. Um, yeah. We're, we're just not, especially in close context. It's like we're just not. We're not well designed for it. We can do it, um, but it's hard to get people to be good at killing. Right? And so that's where belief. Right. Comes. I mean, think about militaries. Right. How do you you have to strip down the sort of cultural experience in life and rebuild this kind of new imaginary and this new right. society to get people to be good soldiers? It's hard. Um, but but you could see how that happens in many ways. And we can see this happening in the United States right now. This sort of oppositional belief systems yes. are just slamming against each other yeah I'm, I'm worried about tomorrow well we're recording this on the day before the big election <laughs> hey. let's let's hope uh by the time this airs we'll have uh, passed through the uh potential trauma oh boy let's see yeah well yeah i i think i think i agree with you on that uh, so much depends on this uh, i think it's better to have a continuum mm -hmm. thinking rather than binary 
Um, and that, that allows you more leeway. So you're not fighting over every single incident that happens, whether it supports this theory or that theory. Um, well, let's kind of wrap up with talking about, in a more positive sense, love and affection and, and all this stuff. One of my favorite lines from Tim Minchin that I use in my debates, God debates, where someone like Dinesh D'Souza will say, well, you can't, you can't scientifically quantify love. You can't explain love from a scientific uh, perspective. And I say, Tim Minchin's line, you know, you know what you call love without evidence? Stalking. <laughs> 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 so, so yeah. I mean, here's the whole thing with love, though. I mean, but it's not just that romantic or sex. I mean, so the broader thing, and we talked about this earlier, humans have this amazing capacity to bond, right? To socially, emotionally, physiologically connect with others, right? Sometimes that's around romance. We know that's frequently around family and, and connection. And, and frequently it's just around fictive kin, right? The, the, who we think are our families or, or who yeah. we care about. It's even some of these physical responses we, we commit to our pets, right? Our dogs and cats and to our favorite team, right? So the human capacity to wholly commit in this sort of emotional, physiological way is very real. And so thinking about that in a complex way. So I would push against that we can't understand the science of love because so I can talk about the physiology and the neurobiology. Yeah. But as I argue in the book, it's more than that because we believe in it as much more than just this physical response. And I think that's it's powerful um, and really important. To what extent is pair bonding in a monogamous relationship natural or is this an artifact of westerns is this a weird western civilization thing well i mean i think i think we have to be very careful because and, and this is actually some of my earliest work back in the 90s um looking at well what do we mean by pair bonded right and monogamous uh, and those are complex terms humans form incredibly tight pair bonds which may involve sex may involve romance may involve reproduction or may just involve sort of tight connectivity physiological you can actually get some of the same connections there um, humans are frequently monogamous, but we're not exclusively monogamous, right? Mm. That is, humans frequently commit to strong uh, sort of multi-mating season bonds, that is, we're the same person to sort of reproduce. Um, but those bonds are not necessarily monogamous in the sense that having sex with someone else means that the bond is broken. And so there's these complex things and where the cultural and religious ideologies come into, I think, conflict with the physiology and the behavior of humans. So to say monogamously pair bonded is to talk about pair bonds on one hand and monogamy on another, and the two don't necessarily connect okay. in the way most people think. You, you probably know Jeffrey Miller, and and you know the and you know he kind of pushes polyamory, and you know I kind of get the uh, get what he's talking about. Although when I brought it up with my wife, she's like, uh, "What? Uh, no, <laughs> don't even don't even read that material." <laughs> <laughs> it just, I mean, the thing is that there's, so the data are very clear, right? Humans have multiple sexualities. There's a whole bunch of different ways in which yeah. humans are, yeah. if you want to call this naturally diverse sexually. Yeah. But but how you play out your pair bonds, your attachments to others, your reproduction, your parenting, your romantic attachments, those are so intertwined with your experience, your mm. culture, the histories, or your language. So I, I think looking across, we see this diversity but but there is, I think, one thing pretty clear. There's not just one way to successfully be human, right? right? And right. that definitely is true for human sexuality. Yeah, you mentioned uh, Sarah Hurdy. Uh, uh, her book, what was her book? Um, was Mothers about, and Others? Mothers and Others, yes, about extended families and in hunter-gatherer communities. You know, everybody helps, uh, you know, raise the children and so on. Uh, it takes a village, maybe, uh, something like that. 
there's more than one. Yeah, so I, this is the problem of saying, well, that's not natural or, you know, the, the, the one right way to be. Then that becomes politicized. Right. Um, you know, right. conservatives and, are going to be more, you know, the nuclear family is the natural way that God made us and therefore anybody else is a deviant. Clearly, that's not right. You know, no. And, and I mean, if you look at the sort of ethnographic literature, I mean, even in the United States, like single nuclear family residences, the only with no extended care, that's not even typical in the USA anymore. Or it, right. it hasn't been wasn't before it was sold as this notion. But truly, that's not the way most of us live. Um, so and, and it's definitely not the way most humans live on the planet. So so those you really got to sort of look at the look at the ethnography, look at the data, look at the physiological data, look at the way in which humans reproduce and parent. Uh, before getting into the sort of social and moral religious sort of associations, because you can see the imposition of those uh, trying yeah, to constrain yeah. human diversity in ways. T- and, and you see the problems that causes. Tell us how you think about uh, sex and gender, since this is another one of these hot button topics, uh, you know, where conservatives heads exploded when Facebook said, you can have 50 different genders if you want. <laughs> and he goes, well, no, I mean, there's, there's only two. <laughs> But there are many different gender systems, right? Our contemporary system, let's, for example, here in the U.S. has this gender spectrum, right, where we have this sort of male masculinity and femininity. Um, We know that they're not binary. We know, I like to say sex gender because you can't really pull them apart, right? They're connected to one another, but it's not like genitals predetermine your gender. However, there are patterns and cultural expectations associated with genitals um, that are very robust and built in. And so understanding there's big differences in humans, right, based on reproductive processes and physiologies. But then there's this incredibly complex array of behavior, experience, and representation of sexuality and on the masculinity, femininity sort of spectrum. So I would get away from the binary again in this and and ask, well, what what do the data say, right? What do we see psychologically, physiologically, and what do we see across the world in different sort of modes of gender practice? And we see a lot of diversity. Um, So again, a simple answer, um, this sort of it's either this way or this way. There's yeah, males yeah, and females yeah, and they're yeah. totally different. And that's clear. It's it's messy. But what are the numbers? So say, for example, 95 percent of people born with uh, this genitalia identify as that gender and 95 percent on the other side. So we're talking about two overlapping fuzzy sets and it's just yeah. a 5 percent or 10 percent. What do we know? Well, well, that changes culturally, right? That changes in how you classify those. What about systems that have three or five genders? There are three and five gender systems in, right. in, in human societies, right? right. And so, right. so that that percentage approach still maps the binary. It's like there's two types, but there's a little overlap. How about there's a spectrum, right, with some clustering in this way and some clustering in this way for gender? Reproductively, right, there are patterns for mammals, right? There's no getting around that. That is the way it is, right? Right. right. But reproductive physiology does not map 100% to gender identities okay. or to gender behavior. Right. And also, you got to separate um, who you're attracted to versus what you identify as. Those could, that also right. varies. And that's really, and people want to associate gender with sexuality. And you got to be really careful because that actually is across those things totally overlap. Right. <laughs> well, from a position, uh, person in your position, this must be an interesting time uh, as these things play out uh, in, in public, often highly politicized as usual. Uh, I loved your book, and I'm going to read the last two paragraphs here because I thought it was just so beautifully written. At the outset of this book, I asserted that believing is a commitment, an investment, a devotion to novel ways of imagining or becoming 
none of which need be rooted in material reality, but all of which can be infused with hope. Belief for better and worse is a deeply and distinctly human process, neither accident nor miracle, I like that, but the product and process of our lineage's history and the evolution of the human niche. Philosopher Simone de Beauvoir once said, One's life has value so long as one attributes value to the life of others by means of love, friendship, indignation, and compassion. The major way we attribute value is via belief. And I hope that we can better direct our shared beliefs and values to imagine, hope for, and create a better future. Well, I hope you're right, sir, because <laughs> 2020 is putting this all to the test. What a year. <laughs> Unbelievable. Yeah. yeah. I don't know how old it you is. are, but this is the, you know, the craziest year. I've, I'm 66, and you know, I was in eighth grade and 68. I know I'm told that was a crazy year, but I was too young to know that. So this has got to be it. This is it. This is it for me, for sure. Wait, <laughs> let's, let's just let's hope it turns out okay. All right. Why We Believe, the Evolution and the Human Way of Being. It's a beautiful book. What's your next book? What are you working on now? Um, actually, I'm working on a couple projects, but the one related to this would be a big project on cultural evolution, right? And thinking oh. about concepts. And so taking apart belief and sort of focusing in on how do we develop concepts and how do concepts change our neurobiologies and our perceptions and maybe how they change the human niche. Oh, interesting. So you might start with memes or something like that, maybe. Or yeah, but even more complicated, right? Sort of ratcheting up to these sort of systems of ideas. Oh, right. Um, so, so basically taking this work I've been doing and trying to get better models and get more refined with it. Yeah. Well, that sounds good. Good luck with that. And we'll have you on when you're done with that one. <laughs> awesome. Well, thanks so much. It was a great pleasure to chat with you. Before Shopify, were you wondering, where my sales at? Now you're selling with Shopify, the global commerce platform supercharging your selling. You have no problem selling online, in person, on social media, and beyond. Gary, easy on the cha-ching. <clears throat> oh, sorry, but my Shopify sales are through the roof. Start selling with Shopify today and discover how millions of businesses around the world use Shopify to ignite their selling. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash listen. Shopify.com slash listen. 